Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, writer, saxophonist from Central New Jersey, Kevin Sun. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Mr. Kevin Sun with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So tell the people about yourself, then we get into it. Sure. My name's Kevin Sun. I'm a saxophonist and composer. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I've been here about eight years. Okay. Well, first things first, where were you trained? Um, I studied music, um, at the New England Conservatory in Boston. So I was there about five years. I took lessons with uh, a lot of musicians, uh, saxophonists like Miguel Zanon and Jerry Berganzi, and took a lot of classes with other great, you know, musicians like Billy Hart, Cecil McBee, John McNeil, um, you know, a whole lot of great faculty there and great musicians in Boston, you know, my peer group. Um, so that would have been about 2010 to about 2015, I was in Boston. So that was a great learning experience. Okay. You sound very calm, very volatile. I like it. That's good. No, it's just, it's just usual for you, right? <laughs> it's kind of my vibe. Yeah, it tends to be like that. Okay, that's great, man. Well, first thing I want to say is I did love the album. That was a oh, thank you. And the way it was written, it reminded me of in college when they put you with the combo. And it's like, yeah, you got to hit certain things and certain notions and everything. And being a percussionist, I always hated those. Mm. Because we have to hit certain things, thing, and then it would open up, and then I could have fun. But when it was strict on the whole thing, I'm like, this kind of blows. <laughs> oh, I see. You mean the more notated or the more fixed thing? Yes. Mm. But don't get me wrong. I still loved it. Uh, depths 4, oh, depths 6, right there. <laughs> so Yeah, a lot going on in those. Yeah, yeah so... What was your vision when you were putting this together? Um, well, you know, those pieces I started, uh, I think, in 2019, just from sketches. I had just finished, you know, recording and releasing, like, another set of long compositions, and I just wanted to try writing stuff that I hadn't played before. So I think, broadly speaking, I had, like, an idea of some kind of harmony and stuff I was going to work with, and I had some rhythmic ideas, and I wanted to just mix them together. Um, you know, and so those pieces are just, they're tiny fragments, like depths mm -hmm. six is, I think it's three measures or something. So, um, I just tried to write something that was pretty dense and, and short, but had some, you know, material to dig into in terms of like the rhythm of it and, um, you know, the melodic angle so that it sounds something like something I wouldn't play on my own, but something that maybe I put it out, put it down on paper and then try to figure out how to make it into music, you know, with, uh, other musicians. Understood. Now, since you brought that part up, so you said that you wouldn't play it on your own and you were writing it. So you didn't have a radio in mind. You didn't have a live performance in mind. No, I did have live performance in mind, but I guess I tend to write from a place where um, I like to write things that if I were, were just improvising freely on my own, I probably wouldn't reach it for whatever reason. You know, like I just have my own tendencies and places I like to go. And so I like to write 
kind of material that um, forces me to dig into somewhere new for me personally. Um, I just find that that's kind of, for me, it's the most rewarding approach. It um, helps me, you know, feel like I'm staying fresh in terms of what I'm digging into, you know, and I love um, also just staying, you know, within like the bounds of a lot of music that I do love, like jazz standards and the repertoire. But I find, you know, as a composer, um, I'm trying to fill this other uh, desire, you know, or need for exploration um, that I don't always get in other musical contexts, if that makes sense. No, I get that. It's just the only thing I would even question on with it is like, this is literally like modern jazz right now. So I have no problem with it. Is this some of the older heads would be like, this is not straight ahead. Like you said, it was a free bedroom. No, absolutely. It isn't. So. No, it definitely isn't. And uh, I agree. No, no. So is there any pushback from them when you have this? I'm sure there is, but, uh, you know, I haven't heard much of it in person. I think probably the pushback is just uh, no response. (laughs) Uh, But, um, you know, because I feel like most of the gigs I play, I am playing tunes or I'm playing, you know, kind of music that's more accessible. So when it's my turn to, you know, write something, I'm just going to go for the thing that I'm interested in, you know, or curious about, Um, you know, and I also kind of approach it from the angle of, I don't really, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but no, I'm not that concerned with <laughs> if it sounds like it sounds good or not. You know, like to me as a listener, I'm kind of just, I'm really just exploring and trying to make something happen with other musicians. And um, if it doesn't sound good, hopefully at least it's interesting or I learned something, you know, I kind of treat it that way because I feel like a lot of the time I am as a musician, I'm trying to make things sound good and feel good for the band, um, which I think is, you know, the most important thing you know, for most contexts, but because this is so specific, this is just like why my one person's individual, you know, recording. I just want to try to find something else, okay. regardless of if it sounds good or not. No, I admire the bravery. Because me personally, I know if I release the same thing, I have my own core group of people that'd be like, what the, yeah. But that's good, man. Yeah, I get that too. I mean, <laughs> like from, you know, I, my friends have been hearing, you know, or they've been saying this to me for years, but they're always like, wow, how did you write something that's even more, you know, out there? Or no, Yeah, I mean, people, know, if you listen to his like other I, albums I before this, this, that's literally what it is. It's like <laughs> next step, then the next step, and then the next step. And I'm like, yeah. That's why I really like say it's like a, a jazz combo I don't want to say improvisation, of course, but it's like an experimental free project. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. The experimenting is, you know, for me, is like the most important aspect of it, at least to begin with. Okay. So the question on this is like, so what are you going to do? Are you going to keep pushing it that way or are you going to try to get more of a mainstream vibe? Yeah, that's a great question. I... I actually do already have like another album in the can from earlier this year. And I basically purposely made that, designed it to be more mainstream. Um, I think sort of uh, part of it was I just wanted to see if I could do it, you know, because I think in the back of my mind, it's easy to just assume, oh yeah, like, you know, I hear all these records, I feel like I know what's happening. But then to actually try to do it is challenging. And there are a lot of 
challenges. And I think also it's very obvious when it's not happening. Whereas, you know, in an experimental setting, nobody really knows what it's supposed to sound like. And so it's hard for people to say this is not, you know, achieving the goal that it's trying to do. Whereas if it has a really clear reference point, it's supposed to have a certain vibe on a lot of classic records that we love. If, it, if that part isn't there, it's just obvious. Um, but I, yeah, I think musically I'm kind of trying to do two different things. Like I'm keeping this direction to a certain extent. I'm not really writing. I haven't been writing in the past year and a half, like anything that's as long or involved in terms of like a sequence of pieces that are related. I basically am going back to just writing individual songs and, you know, going for individual ideas, but having them pre pretty kind of low stakes, like, you know, a page or two long songs that have a clear idea and that's it. Um, and maybe I'll go back to writing longer format pieces like this at some point, but I think I kind of just felt like I needed a break um, because it, it's just really kind of emotionally intense, you know, to listen to. And it's not something I would want to play all the time, like every week at a regular gig. And I don't think people would necessarily want to listen to it, you know, every week, which is fine. You know, it's just uh, just how, how the music is and, um, you know, the context it's designed for. Okay. No, that's a lot. I <laughs> Okay, so what was the draining part about recording this then? Yeah, I mean, I think the first part is just logistically, it's a lot of music. And so I split it up into three um, recording sessions over a year and a half. Um, mm -hmm. And before I even had the album in mind, I just wanted to record each of the three long pieces that are in there. So... Um, the earliest part was eponymous cycle. So that's like the last three tracks of the first disc. We did that in May of 2022. And then the next section was the whole depths, you know, sequence, which is the whole second CD. So we did that in December of 20. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm getting mixed up, you know, with the pandemic years. I'm pretty sure eponymous cycle was May 2021. Okay, 21. And then depths was December 2021. And then the, you know, I think the first seven tracks off the first disc we recorded last, which was May of 2022. And then finally it came out this year in 2023. Um, so, you know, I think the main thing is just, it was kind of like a long process in terms of how many recording sessions were involved and, you know, practicing and playing gigs leading up to those recordings. And then going through the process for each set of recordings, you know, of just listening to the roughs, deciding what to use, if you're going to do any splices or edits you know, going through that whole process, mixing, going through the mastering. Um, it's kind of just like doing three albums, <laughs> you know, three, three different recording sessions, but just trying to make it, you know, for a single release. That's probably the most taxing part of it. Nice. Dude, man, like I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the hardest working guys in music, believe it or not. He's being super modest and he's not talking about oh, a lot of the other stuff he does, which is why <laughs> I'm like, ah. I appreciate that. I mean, okay, whatever. Tell the people about how I originally know you from is your Jazz Speaks blog. Oh, I didn't know that. Ah, yeah, I know. I'm a loser. I read all this stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Jazz Speaks is the official blog of the Jazz Gallery, and it's still running. So for a couple of years, I was pretty involved with it, doing a lot of musician interviews. And then prior to that, I also had my own blog on my website, um, it's still there, but I don't really update it very regularly. Um, you know, I think I started in the early 2010s, you know, when I was in music school and, and blogging was still 
you know, existed to a certain extent. Like there used to be tons and tons of jazz bloggers, people writing about recordings, writing about, you know, bootlegs, writing about music, whatever. I love the bootleg articles. People would respond. (laughs) I used to love those. (laughs) You know, so yeah. And now, you know, a lot of that is is basically gone or it's either migrated to YouTube or it's um, a lot of people who were more, you know, heavy on the writing side are doing like Substack and releasing their own, you know, newsletters and things. I just couldn't keep up. And I think especially getting out of music school and just trying to work and balance, you know, making a living and, and playing and all that, there just wasn't time for it. And um, and I also felt like at that time, I was really just learning a lot really fast. And I just wanted to kind of document it or share it. You know, there's the spirit of, hey, you know, I found this thing. Um, it's really interesting and new to me. Maybe someone else is going to get something out of it. Um, you know, kind of paying forward what I was getting from reading other people's blogs, you know, which is basically just, you know, labor and study and research that they're sharing for free, very generously. I mean, okay, so like I said, people, he's being too modest. So he was doing this blog while he was going to Harvard, while studying English, while doing all this other stuff. By the way, I make fun of Ivy League guests normally, but I'm just going to leave that, let you be today. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but like I said, so how do you fit all of that in there while doing the music, while doing the blog, while doing, you get what I'm saying? It's actually very impressive. Thanks. I really appreciate that. I think for me, I just wanted to try to keep everything going. You know, I I feel like in a way I want to lay the foundation for kind of where I am now, which is, you know, I have a much more steady routine. Like I have much more free time to myself compared to when I was in music school and when I was doing my undergrad. Um, so I wanted to kind of plant the seeds for things that I would study later on and just kind of like put it all in one place, jot it down. So for instance, like a lot of the stuff I transcribed for my blog, I transcribed it because I wanted to put it down so that I could, you know, study it kind of from a distance, you know, like I obviously want to get into the sound of it. Um, but that takes a lot of time and energy, which I don't think I really had at that time. So I just wanted to put it down somewhere, save it. Um, and now that I do have more time, you know, in a, a more steady schedule, you know, when I have the energy and, um, you know, desire to look into that kind of stuff, it's right there. Um, and I kind of know what directions I want to explore. So I, you know, I, that's kind of one way I think of it. I, even though I was publishing all that stuff, it doesn't mean that I necessarily knew that stuff very well. It was just sort of, um, I'm trying to like put a bookmark for myself, you know, for something like, I know I want to study this. This is really deep, but, um, I can't get to it right now, but I, I definitely will at some point in my life. Okay. Okay. So you're going to mention the artistic director part or am I going to bring it up? <laughs> I think you should bring it up. I guess you already have, um, but yeah, we can talk about it. I'm just curious, man. Okay. So how did you get that gig with the blue note jazz orchestra? I'll tell you the story. So I went back to China after I finished uh, Newton Conservatory. This is the fall of 2015. Um, my parents are both from there. They immigrated to Canada first in the 80s when they were like in their 20s, late 20s, 30s. And then they, um, I was born in Canada and my dad got a job offer in the U.S. and he decided to take it. They moved to New Jersey. So I grew up in New Jersey and I went back to China a few times as a kid here and there. Um, but I really felt like... Um, I wanted to reconnect, you know, to that, my roots, basically. I think a lot of people have that feeling in their early 20s. Um, and so I went and I stayed with my aunt in Beijing for six weeks and basically just tried to relearn Chinese as best as I could on my own and also, you know, 
hang out um, and check out Beijing. It turns out there's a really, you know, pretty thriving jazz scene there. And so I just started showing up to this local club, East Shore, which is sort of like, it's sort of like the Smalls or the Vanguard of uh, Beijing. It's like a pretty small room, but um, has a great vibe and great musicians hang out there. And so um, it was through there that I connected with a lot of local musicians. And one of them was actually another, you know, like American born Chinese uh, musician, uh, Terry Shea. So he's a trombonist and now he's um, he's been, you know, working uh, primarily like in the pop scene in Hong Kong and across China and in Taiwan where he lives now. And he was involved with the Blue Note uh, Beijing when it opened in terms of getting, leading the big band there. And at a certain point, he essentially got too busy, you know, kind of with all these um, pop gigs that involved a lot of touring. And, you know, he became MD for certain projects and um, he recommended me basically. And so I took it on and um, did it for uh, what, just over two years, basically, or maybe not even. I started, I think my first concert was in August, 2018. And the last one was New Year's Eve this was December 31st, 2019. So I was supposed to play a concert in March, 2020, but it got canceled, obviously. Um, so that was sort of that gig that I did for about a year and a half. And I flew to China a lot, like every two months, basically, for a couple of days to lead the big band. And yeah, that was an intense time. I, d I don't know if I could do it now, but uh, Why at not, that time, man? you know, I was really just hungry for experience. <laughs> I'm just so comfortable now, you know, I'm so spoiled getting to play, you know, locally in Brooklyn. Um, but back then, you know, I had way fewer gigs. So, you know, I'm happy to fly across the world to play like two nights and then come back. Um, <laughs> there are people I know who won't even go from Brooklyn to Connecticut for a gig. Exactly. <laughs> and you're flying literally, yeah, well, how long so, is that? At that time. <laughs> 18 hours? It's like 12, I mean, well, door to door, you know, it's probably 14, 15 hours. But yeah, the flight itself is like 12 hours. And you have to go to the airport and get to each place. I mean, I remember it was crazy. There were times where because of the schedule, it would be like, I would get there, I think at 5 or 6 p.m., go straight to rehearsal. We would rehearse the big band for three hours. And then, you know, I would pass out. And then the next afternoon, it'd be like, show up at the venue, sound check, play, you know, two concerts, and then play two more concerts the next day and then fly back. It was, you know, so tiring. But, um, you know, I... It's something you wouldn't get to really do otherwise unless you really wanted to like lead a big band. So I got to pick all the music, rehearse the band. Um, we got to dig into a lot of really cool repertoire. Um, you know, I'm not like a big band specialist, but because of the responsibilities of that job, I had to learn more about, you know, what music's available and how to rehearse it. And Did you guys record so anything? Fun. I have a lot of the rec like concerts that we did. I, I filmed them just on my phone. But um, no, we didn't go in the studio. Dude, I need to and go still back playing, over you know? there, record some <laughs> albums, and then bring it over. I want a Chinese big band competing with these guys over here. They're still playing, you know. I mean, they, I, I, I follow them, you know, online on basically like the Chinese Facebook, and so I see it. You know, they're playing shows. Uh, it's cool. You know, I haven't been back since. I'm hoping to go back maybe next year to visit. But you know, it's traveling there can be tough. Um, you know, they only just reinstated the visas like this yeah. March and you still can't fly over Russian airspace, you know, so it takes, you know, six hours longer to get there. So there are a lot of reasons, you know, no, why it's tough to get over there. But um, I understand, man. I, I need you to do your part, man. You need to go over there, start recording <laughs> those albums and then start branching them out. Because, I mean, I said it on other shows. It's like I don't know many Chinese jazz artists. 
I had a Mongolian guest the right. other day. I was like oh, starstruck. Amazing. Like, wow, you do exist. <laughs> and she was nasty. Yeah. I mean, she's, I oh, love that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, even if you know them, you got to bring some attention to them, man. We're trying to exactly. help our dying field. No, it's huge. <laughs> I hear you. And then, you know, what's amazing is I feel like, you know, obviously there's a massive market in China. I mean, people know about, you know, Japan and um, also South Korea, you know, for jazz markets, but China's huge. And it was funny, like playing there, I feel like it's so relatively, like jazz is relatively new there. You can imagine like in 15 years, that could be a huge wave of interest. And, you know, and the Blue Note at that time, I, I don't know, I'm not that familiar with their programming now, but they're bringing over a lot of really heavy people from, you know, all over to play there. So yeah, I hear you. I think making that connection, bridging that in some ways is really important. And it's going to be more and more important as, uh, you know, we see the dying embers of jazz in America <laughs> or whatever. Oh, or the it's Phoenix dying, man. You know that. Thing. I know you're comfortable over here playing, but. <laughs> it's really tough out here. It's... I can't lie. You know. So where do you see it? At least, uh, yeah, actually, actually, do you consider yourself, do you consider yourself a Canadian also? Or you just consider yourself? I can't really because I just, you know, I moved, we moved from there when I was like 10 days old. Okay. And I've been back, but. I didn't really grow up there. Understood. So, yeah. I also make fun of Canadian artists. But yes, okay, so my thing on that <laughs> is <laughs> from what you see here versus there, because like I said, I don't know much about what's going on in the Chinese scene. So you have to enlighten me and tell my guests what's pretty much going on over there. How do you see the two comparing? Well, I think just, I haven't been in a couple of years, but I think it's just, we're still at the stage where you know, there needs to be like a critical mass of just creative young jazz musicians. And I think right now there are tons, from what I hear, there are tons of young musicians like coming from China to study in the U.S. and abroad, you know, like at Berkeley or, you know, sometimes in conservatories in Europe. And basically they're bringing the knowledge back gradually. And so at a certain point, you know, there'll be enough of a foundation that, um, you know, the scene can really grow. Um, and I, you know, the amazing thing I think for me, like, when I, you know, in my 20s, like going to China and meeting musicians there, I met people who, you know, had been studied, they, they were like in the first wave of people learning jazz, like in the 90s from bootleg, like cassette tapes that they had to like secretly obtain. Like it was insane. You know, there'd be like one copy of this cassette of one Miles Davis record. And then they would just secretly pass around, make copies. And like, that was all that they had, you know. I got to ask, why secretly? They weren't allowed to play jazz over there? No, I, I don't know. I mean, not really. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's just, yeah, it just wasn't, you know, it's sort of like, I think how jazz was in music schools, like in the 60s in the US, where it was just like, it just wasn't something that you were openly doing. Um, but, you know, so meeting those guys who had, who have so much love for the music and like, uh, you know, from their perspective, looking at even just like my generation, they're just so, like so blown away that there are people, you know, who look like this or playing music at a certain level. Um, and I just see it, you know, expanding basically, hopefully. And another part of it is just, you know, there being enough venues and, and openness, but um, it's all, I don't know. It seems, I haven't been there recently enough to see what's going on. I hear that there are new clubs open in Beijing and there are new places to play, but I don't have firsthand experience, so I can't comment too much on that. Okay. And, not trying to be the political person, but you're saying that 
Was it more the conservatories or like the government not letting jazz be played? I mean, I would imagine it's the government, but I don't know. If, I'd have to check again on the history. Uh, okay, yeah. fair. Like I said, you're already interesting to a completely different level here, man. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't get that every day. <laughs> so. You're very kind. You played with Kenny at one point. And Richard Prayer, right? Kenny? Yes, you played with VJ at one point. You played with Kenny Bullet at one point, correct? And Rich Perry at one point, correct? But yeah, no, Vijay was, he was my professor at Harvard. And um, yeah, we did play like a one-off concert at Banff, which he used to run, sort of like a workshop for improvising musicians. And Rich Perry, I know, I kind of know Rich better now from just being on the scene, but um, he was a special guest with the New York Youth Symphony big band, jazz band classic. Um, and I feel like... Yeah, I see him around all the time now, like at Bar Bayou and other places. But yeah, that was sort of my encounter with his greatness. Okay, so how was VJ being your professor? He said it like, you see what I mean, people? He's just like, yeah, you know, I taught, I got taught, yeah. No, Vijay's heavy guy. I mean, he definitely had a huge impact on my direction of music. Like the thing I was saying earlier about writing music that I couldn't quite, you know, understand or play, that's basically directly from him, which is the idea of, when you're composing, you're trying to just push yourself to do something that you couldn't do before, you know, um, that definitely came straight from him and many ideas about music and like writing music for improvisers. Um, yeah, I have to credit him with a lot of, you know, basically the, the direction I've taken since graduating school and trying to find a foothold, you know, in the New York scene. Um, you know, just opening my mind to a lot of music that I just wasn't even aware of at all, you know, just whole streams of music, you know, like, um, I don't know. I can't say enough, but okay. um, yeah, fantastic. So in your expertise, what is something people misunderstand about the music world? Hmm. Well, <laughs> this is a really stupid, uh, maybe for first immediate response, but I think people are always confused what instrument you're playing, you know, like if you have a bass, everyone thinks it's a violin or a cello. Um, I think the other day someone was asking me what kind of trumpet I played. <laughs> I mean, that's totally fine. I, you know, it doesn't bother me that much, but it happens all the time. I'm sure, you know, I guess, I don't know with drums, it probably doesn't happen as much, but. Um, that's a beautiful thing about being know. a percussionist, man. People know <laughs> us. <laughs> but <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. When Esperanza won the Grammy, the first one for like best new artist, mm -hmm. I had people talk, try to talk to me about it, which is cool. I'm glad. But they were talking saying she plays the cello. So I feel you on that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even Esperanza, it doesn't yeah. matter who you are. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think that's very common. This is also pretty, you know, harmless, but... Um, people always ask, do you play solo or with a band? And, you know, I think as a jazz musician, it's so important, I mean, to play with other people, you know, like all the gigs you're playing, it's at least a duo, uh, you know, unless you're a solo pianist, but, um, it's always, you know, you have at least have bass or you have a drums or something. Um, and so, I don't know, I always have to clarify that, you know, I, I lead my own projects, but I play in all bands pretty much all the time. I'm never playing solo concerts. 
it's kind of hard to do that nowadays for most instruments. Solo concert. Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that, for me, that's like the most challenging discipline. I don't know how people can get on stage and keep your interest, you know, for 30 minutes. Um, you know, it's, unless it's an instrument like piano where it seems like it's designed to be played solo in a but, way. But then like you can like accompany yourself, you know. Background I mean? music for the most part. Most of the people I know who That's even, how people hear it. Yeah. They went to Manus, they went to Crane, they went to the top schools, they got their masters, and they're playing background music gigs at corporate settings. Now, don't get me wrong, it's yeah. a good paying gig, but at the same time, mm -hmm. they tell me how much it kind of hurts. Yeah. I mean, I feel kind of like lucky in a way, like, you know, those gigs are great and I've done them, background gigs. But if you do that all the time, like I was speaking to someone recently, a drummer, and they were saying, if you play too many in a row where just after every song, it's just like you just hear people talking really loudly, uh, it starts to get in your head in a weird way. Like when you go back to playing a gig where people are listening to you. Um, so I think just finding a way to mentally balance that must be really challenging. Um, yeah, background music. And it's amazing also just hearing like, you know, older musicians who are either still doing it or they did it for a long time and maybe you just never knew. Like just hearing, just imagining 20 years ago, you know, such such and such person who's, you know, now at the top of the jazz world, they were playing background music gigs at some random place, you know, schlepping around a keyboard and an amp or whatever. It's kind of, um, I don't know, in a way it's, it's like humbling. It's kind of like we've all been there, which is, yeah. you're connected to that be connected to that but then it's like how should i put it uh, i think even those guys have a disconnect mm. because they like to say stuff like our generation yes people he's around my age don't really work hard and get into gigs and all that stuff oh i see what you're saying like yeah. a certain kind of yeah like i was willing to play these type of gigs until i got my break and it's like they don't have those type of gigs anymore. And a lot of people don't really get a break. It's like they have to save up their money to make their own project. Yeah, to lose money on. <laughs> exactly. You said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's the truth. I mean, if anyone's making jazz from recordings who's, you know, not signed to a major label, I want that knowledge. <laughs> I wish I knew. But uh, I know you're saying, yeah, there's certain gigs. A lot of gigs are just not around anymore. And so, yeah, we have to make do with whatever, you know, we can put together as musicians and playing at whatever venue. Like this is a, another conversation I've been having with many musicians, especially, you know, in Brooklyn in terms of just, um, you know, I think DIY is like so important, you know, because there's, there's just so many musicians and there aren't enough places to play. And so if you have to play in a bicycle shop or, you know, <laughs> anywhere, any sort of venue that will ha let you play music and people are down for it and they'll show up, then, you know, why not go for it? I agree with you. It's just the whole thing of me is, will they show up? That's the hard part. Exactly. Yeah. You know, make, getting people to come out. Um, that's always the challenge. And everybody's having that problem now. From the movie theaters yeah. to yes. <laughs> even Broadway. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know how... Uh, you know, I think it just, it's very diffuse now, you know, it's like in terms of the culture, you know, I think especially just digitally online, it's just hard to get people's attention. And I feel the same, like, I don't know what to do with my attention a lot of the time. It kind of just goes here and it goes there and I try to resist it, but, um, there's just a lot of distraction.
Okay, so you brought that up internet-wise. Are you big on promoting yourself online? I am now. So I, I can tell you this because uh, basically at the end of last year, I was thinking of New Year's resolutions just for fun. I, I'm, I'm usually not that strict about it. But I for fun, I was thinking I should make myself do social media. <laughs> as a New Year's resolution for a year and see what happens. And so I'm almost at the end, which I'm glad for. And I think I'll probably take a break. <laughs> come January, but I've been trying to see what happens if you actually spend more time, you know, in that world of just posting a lot and making content basically. And, uh, you know, it's pretty terrible. Like I think most people feel that it just makes you feel worse generally during the day. And it's very hard. Like I find it's hard to focus after spending time on my phone posting things. But, um, I do feel like in some ways there's some intangible benefit of reaching more you know, listeners, um, I can't really tell, you know, it's kind of, that part is kind of nebulous. Like there's analytics to a certain extent and, and numbers of likes and things, but you don't really know how people are engaging with your art, you know? And I feel like, so the question for me is, am I going to keep doing this next year? Am I going to keep in this level of self-promotion? And I think ultimately I would just love to get someone else to do it for me <laughs> and, and pay money, but I'm not that level, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, so no, I, I don't know. Understand. It's kind of a weird arms race, you know. I think it's more of you damned you do, damned you don't. Exactly. <laughs> even before my little break, I was doing a pop album with a legit artist. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Amazing. This guy literally sat down and explained that whole thing to me on an even deeper level. Oh, yeah? He's like, yeah. do you think I like posting three, four times a day? No, I have to post three, four times a day. Yeah, it's like getting stuck on this treadmill, you know, it's it's hard to get off once you're on it. Uh, yeah, but this guy's a legit A-list artist. Yeah, right. And he exactly. sells out. That's part of your job. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> and he says point blank, I don't want to do it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, if he didn't have to do it, you know, but you're, you're there and it's working, you know, so it's, you know, that situation, like they're offering you the gig or whatever. So you're just. You don't know what's going to happen. You just take it and just go with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like Mitski, you know, the pop artist. I know that in an interview, you know, they said something to the similar effect of like, at the beginning I was working 90% on music and maybe 10% on some promotion stuff. But now that things are really happening, it's like 10% of my time and energy I can save up for music. And the rest of it is really taking care of business and making sure that stuff is getting done, you know. So I understand it. I mean... I'm not at that point. <laughs> Luckily, it's still mostly music and the promotion thing is just a piece of it. But um, I don't know where it ends. Um, I imagine a certain point, like, I don't know, because I mostly use Instagram for my promoting. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, it's going to it's gonna reach a critical point where people hate it enough that they're going to move to the next thing, you know, generally. Instagram so, in general? I think so. You know, that already happened. Around for like, yeah, or, yeah. I guess people are like sick of it. So it's sick of it. It's, yeah. like, it's all about TikTok now, and even TikTok has its ups and down moments. Sure. So I don't even. I don't think I'm even going to go there. So I, I don't. <laughs> I tell I don't people that because <laughs> yeah. it's too much, and it's too much it's stuff I'm trying to do. That last thing yeah. I need is to get hooked on TikTok. Yeah. So but, you're not doing it. Nah, I should. Okay. This this is my problem. I'll be the first one to tell you. I'm having a podcast with these 
don't get me wrong, I had some amazing guests that dropped mm-hmm. some amazing lines of knowledge. And mm-hmm. here I am saying, do I really want to spend that extra time and edit this to do this, to do that, and with the hopes that it goes jazz viral, which I make fun of. <laughs> That's a hilarious concept, yeah. Jazz famous, yeah. Yes, jazz famous. So all 20 of us know about it. Yeah. I mean, good for you. I think that's the right attitude. Like, you know what you value and, you know, and what you can kind of take on and, you know, you're willing to draw that line. I think that's huge because if you don't, then it'll just suck the life out of you, you know. I mean, that's everything. (laughs) And everything. Exactly. Yeah. So what is your perfect project? Mm, Like a recording project or just a band? You have no budget restriction and it was just make an album for me kevin yeah i've thought a little bit about that um i mean i kind of i kind of think in just like sequential things so things just tend to get bigger or they tend to get longer uh, or the scope changes i mean i would love to do like a with strings album i think that would be incredible but um you know currently it's not that realistic i mean I've thought about it. Like if I contracted out like a really cheap, relatively affordable, like foreign orchestra to actually record parts and then overdub, you know, or you could, you know, do it real DIY and have friends like overdub a lot of string parts. <laughs> but um, that would be a lot of fun. I'd like to do that. If I just didn't have to care about the budget, you know, I would just go for it, I think. Um, I, I think it's just something I would personally enjoy listening to and you know maybe for my family it might not be the most creative thing but um you know like i have charlie parker with strings right in front of me right here so you know it's uh yeah i'll, I'll just say that okay well since you brought it up i this is one of my pet teasers i tell people why are you living in the past love the album album came out what 80 years ago if i'm correct it was 1950, it was recorded no, 50. in 50, so it came out 51. Yeah. The same, 72 years, man? Yeah, no, <laughs> but you know, the music wouldn't be the same. I wouldn't be re- recording the same tunes. It would be new arrangements and, I don't know, maybe some of my originals, but with strings, you know, kind of like, um, that, that's kind of the vision, you know. I just like, just the format is really interesting, you know. It's like, what would it feel like to play w- with an orchestra? I've never done that. Um, I feel like it must be an incredible feeling, like just having a swell of a whole orchestra, you know, 80 people just playing a huge major chord or something. And then the saxophone comes in. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, like I said, Mr. Sun, thank you for joining us. Means a lot. Ladies thank and gentlemen, you. one of the harder people, working people in the industry and probably one of the more modest people. <laughs> oh, thanks. Can you tell the people where to find you, your website, all that stuff? Yep, sure. So my website is just my name, KevinSun, S-U-N dot com. Uh, I'm on Instagram at SunTheKevin. I'm on Facebook at TheKevinSun. And I'm on Twitter at SunTheKevin. And yeah, I'm on Bandcamp. Uh, Basically everything's through my website, but you can find most of it through Instagram as well. Okay. Well, everyone... This is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. 
Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.